The House will come back Monday and stay in session through Thursday. The Senate will come back Tuesday and stay in session through Friday. Last week in the House, the House came back to work on Monday and took up and passed a bill under suspension of the rules. On Tuesday, the House took up and passed a rule. Then the House took up and passed H.R. 497, the Freedom for Healthcare Workers Act, a bill that overturns the Biden vaccine mandate for healthcare workers by a vote of 227 to 203. Then the House took up and passed H.R. 382, the Pandemic is Over Act, by a vote of 220 to 210. On Wednesday, the House took up and passed a rule. Then the House took up and passed H.R. 139, the Show Up Act, by a vote of 221 to 206. Then the House took up and passed H.J. Res. 7, declaring terminated the state of emergency that was declared by President Trump on March 13, 2020, by a vote of 229 to 197. On Thursday, the House took up and passed H. Res. 76, removing a certain member from a certain standing committee of the House. The certain member was Ilhan Omar of Minnesota, and the certain standing committee was the Committee on Foreign Affairs. The vote to remove her was 218 to 211. Then the House took up and passed H. Con Res. 9, a resolution denouncing the horrors of socialism by a vote of 328 to 86. Yes, 86 members of the House voted against a resolution denouncing socialism. Not surprisingly, all of them were Democrats. One other interesting note, in her standard notification to her Democrat colleagues about the upcoming vote, the Democratic whip did not include a message urging her Democratic colleagues to vote no, as she usually does on such votes. Make of that what you will. And then they were done. This week in the House, the House will come back into session on Monday with the first vote set for 5.30 p.m. At that time, the House is scheduled to take up three bills under suspension of the rules. On Tuesday, the House will meet at 10 a.m. for legislative business and to read the Constitution pursuant to H.Res. 5. That's the resolution setting up the rules of the House for this Congress. After last votes, the House will recess and will then reconvene at approximately 8.35 p.m. for a joint session of Congress to receive the President's address on the State of the Union. On Wednesday and Thursday, the House will consider H.R. 185 to terminate the requirement imposed by the Director of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention for proof of COVID-19 vaccination excuse me, for foreign travelers. That is, the bill will overturn the vaccine mandate on foreign travelers traveling to America. HRES 24, disapproving the actions of the District of Columbia Council in approving the Local Resident Voting Rights Amendment Act of 2022, which allows non-citizen residents, that is green card holders and illegal immigrants, to vote in local elections. And H.J. Res. 26, disapproving the action of the District of Columbia Council in approving the Revised Criminal Code Act of 2022, which reduced the sentences for many violent crimes. Last week in the Senate, the Senate came back to work on Monday and voted to confirm Roger Israel Zakheim to be a member of the Board of Directors of the U.S. Institute for Peace.
On Wednesday, the Senate voted by 97 nothing to agree to S-Res 21, a resolution supporting the observation of National Trafficking and Modern Slavery Prevention Month during the month of January 2023, which had just ended. On Thursday, the Senate voted to confirm Joseph Lee Falk to be a member of the Board of Directors of the U.S. Institute of Peace. And then they were done. This week in the Senate, there will be no votes in the Senate on Monday. On Tuesday, likely at its regular 5.30 p.m. start time, the Senate will vote on cloture on the nomination of DeAndrea Gist Benjamin to be U.S. Circuit Judge for the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals. Wednesday, Republican senators will attend an issues conference and Democrat senators will attend a retreat. The Senate will come back for Thursday and Friday according to the schedule, but we still don't know what, if anything, they'll be voting on then. Now to the Columbia Journalism Review. 26,000 words. That's how long it took Jeff Gerth, a former investigative reporter for the New York Times, to dissect the mainstream media's flawed coverage of the Russia collusion story. Published in the Columbia Journalism Review last Monday, it's well worth the investment of time necessary to read it from front to back. You'll find a link to it in this week's suggested reading, and I highly commend it to you. Now to illegal immigration. After two years of essentially no oversight of the Biden administration, the new Republican-majority House is taking corrective action. Multiple committees are launching proper oversight, and even though the new Congress is just a few weeks old, we're already getting some interesting information. The Judiciary Committee under Chairman Jim Jordan got the ball rolling last week with a hearing that focused on explaining the backdrop. That is, what is the real situation at the border? The hearing featured testimony from Cochise County, Arizona Sheriff Mark Daniels, who testified, quote, our southern border against all public comfort statements from Washington, D.C., is in the worst shape I have ever seen it. Our southern border is the largest crime scene in the country, end quote. Sheriff Daniels' testimony is crucial. He pointed out that the public comfort statements that have been coming out of the Biden administration in its attempt to cover up just how bad the situation is at the border For example, DHS Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas's repeated assertions, despite all evidence to the contrary, that the border is, quote, secure. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg's attempt to shut down Fox News drone coverage of thousands of illegal immigrants massing underneath a bridge in Del Rio, Texas. Vice President Kamala Harris's word salad declaration on NBC's Meet the Press that the border is secure, quote, We have a secure border in that that is a priority for any nation, including ours and our administration, end quote. And the effort to remove illegal immigrants from the streets they'd been sleeping on before the arrival of President Biden in El Paso, Texas, just last month. The Judiciary Committee hearing also included testimony from Brendan Dunn, the father of a 15-year-old boy who tragically lost his life last year to a fentanyl overdose.
Meanwhile, the Oversight and Accountability Committee under Chairman James Comer will examine the crisis on the southern border from a different angle. On the front lines of the border crisis, a hearing with chief patrol agents scheduled for Tuesday, February 7, will feature testimony from two chief patrol agents, one from the Rio Grande Valley sector of the U.S. Customs and Border Protection, the other from the Tucson sector of U.S. Customs and Border Protection. Chairman Comer wanted to hear directly from Border Patrol sector chiefs and originally invited four of them to testify so he and his committee could gather information directly from frontline officials. But the Department of Homeland Security balked at that and refused to allow the four to testify. Comer had to follow up with a not-so-veiled threat, allow his invited witnesses to testify or he would be, quote, forced to consider the use of the compulsory process, unquote. That's a euphemism for issuing subpoenas to compel testimony. DHS relented and agreed to allow two of them to testify. The Oversight and Accountability hearing will offer Republicans an opportunity to examine the why of the crisis, to wit, why is this happening? It'll be an interesting exercise. The two witnesses, both of whom are senior executives tasked with significant leadership and management responsibilities in their particular geographic sectors, are in a position to explain what policy changes occurred when the Biden administration took over from the previous administration. Beginning on day one, Biden sent a different message. No more border wall. No more remain in Mexico policy. No more use of Title 42. Instead, he hung out the welcome sign. Changes there were, and the results are evident. According to U.S. Customs and Border Protection's own figures on border encounters, what you or I would call apprehensions, the number of illegal immigrants apprehended trying to cross our border was relatively steady through 2020, with a monthly average of about 38,000 apprehensions. The surge didn't wait for Biden to take office in January 2021. It began in the immediate aftermath of the November 2020 election. Monthly encounters rose from 57,674 in September 2020 to 78,414 in January 2021 to 100,099 in February 2021 to 173,277 in March 2021 to 213,593 in July 2021. The monthly average for 2021 was 144,557. That's about four times the monthly average from the previous year. The surge continued through 2022, getting worse by the month. The monthly average for 2022 was 198,245, about five times the average monthly number uh, during the last year of the previous administration. But now the Republicans control the gavels in the People's House, and they aim to use them to expose what the Biden administration has been up to. Stay tuned. 
More on gas stoves. You remember how a couple weeks ago when we began to raise a stink about the Biden administration's moves against gas stoves and administration spokespeople said we were wrong, that they'd never had their eye on banning gas stoves and we were simply misinterpreting their interest? Well, it turns out they were lying when they said that, not surprising. Fox News found a memo dated October 25 of last year in which Consumer Product Safety Commission Commissioner Richard Trumka Jr. wrote to a fellow commissioner, quote, the need for gas stove regulation has reached a boiling point. CPSC has the responsibility to ban consumer products that emit hazardous substances, particularly when those emissions harm children under the Federal Hazardous Substances Act. Emerging evidence is sufficient to conclude that gas stoves in homes emit toxic gases that cause illness and that lower cost, safer alternatives are available, end quote. The memo went on to point out that the two largest cities in the country, Los Angeles and New York, had already taken action to outlaw gas stoves in new construction, quote, for health and inequity reasons, end quote, and because gas stoves, quote, strongly contribute to climate change through greenhouse gas emissions, end quote. And the kicker, quote, there is sufficient information available for CPSU, I'm sorry, for CPSC, to issue an NPR, that's a Notice of Proposed Rulemaking, in FY 2023, that's now, proposing to ban gas stoves in homes. The additional work needed to complete an NPR is primarily economic. The available health and scientific evidence on illnesses caused by the relevant gases at the concentrations present in homes with gas stoves already exists, end quote. Senators Ted Cruz and Joe Manchin introduced legislation that would prevent the CPSC from banning gas stoves. Now to the COVID emergency. Last Monday, President Biden informed Congress that he was planning to end the twin national emergencies for COVID-19 on May 11. Biden's announcement came in the form of a statement opposing House consideration of two resolutions that would have ended the two states of emergency. Then HHS Secretary Alex Azar first declared a public health emergency on January 31, 2020. President Trump later declared COVID-19 a national emergency on March 13, 2020. As we discussed earlier, the House said, thank you very much, Mr. President. We're going to vote to kill those two, ta- those two states of emergency anyway. One of the interesting aspects of the end to come of the states of emergency is that hospitals will no longer receive additional payments for treating COVID patients. Now to the debt ceiling. On Wednesday afternoon of last week, Speaker McCarthy met in the Oval Office with President Biden. The topic was the debt ceiling. The result was FaceTime for both of them, an opportunity to say nice things about the other guy while preparing to try to outmaneuver the other guy. Both Biden and McCarthy said that Social Security and Medicare are off the table when it comes to negotiations over the debt ceiling. Biden continues to insist he will not negotiate over raising the debt limit, but the very fact that he's begun discussion he's begun discussions with McCarthy indicates that he is negotiating. House Rules Committee Chairman Tom Cole, who also happens to be chairman of the Appropriations Subcommittee, on transportation, housing, and urban development, suggest one thing House Republicans might look at as a means to reduce spending would be to claw back unspent 
COVID relief funds. There's $150 billion in unspent and unobligated COVID relief funds, and another $500 billion in obligated but still unspent COVID relief funds. So that could be a big pot of money. Meanwhile, Republican Study Committee Chairman Kevin Hearn shared with his colleagues a list of proposals endorsed for debt ceiling negotiation discussion by the steering committee of the Republican Study Committee. They include reverse recent increases in overall discretionary spending and institute statutory limitations on annual discretionary spending levels. Enact a package of inflation-busting reforms to increase domestic energy capacity and reduce associated regulatory and permitting barriers. Fight inflation and the onset of a Democrat-induced recession by ending the national COVID-19 emergency, increasing workforce participation, advancing targeted paid-for pro-growth tax policies, and countering overregulation with common-sense guardrails like the RAINS Act. Ensure an increase in the debt ceiling is accompanied by commensurate spending reductions, including through rescissions of the Democrats' recent excessive spending. Eliminate wasteful spending on duplicative programs. Eliminate, I'm sorry, examine ways to fight waste, fraud, and abuse, and transition non-entitlement mandatory programs to the discretionary side of the budget. Establish a long-term fiscal control focused on reducing spending to restrain the growth of our federal debt as a percentage of the nation's economy. And finally, codify procedures to ensure the federal government honors certain critical obligations, such as federal debt payments, national security and veterans, social security, and Medicare. The RAINS Act, referenced above, is the Regulations from the Executive in Need of Scrutiny Act. The act would require congressional approval for any executive branch regulation that would have an economic impact in excess of $100 million. It passed the House back in 2012, but could not pass the Senate. In the current Congress, it's been introduced in the House by Congresswoman Kat Kamak as H.R. 277. The House bill has more than 170 co-sponsors. In the Senate, the bill is carried by Senator Rand Paul, and it's labeled S-184. The Senate bill has 21 co-sponsors. Now the latest on Hunter Biden's laptop fallout. Hunter Biden apparently has missed the spotlight. Last Wednesday, his attorneys sent a series of blistering letters to state and federal prosecutors urging them to launch criminal investigations against people who accessed and disseminated his personal data. In doing so, of course, he did something he had previously not yet done. That is, he acknowledged the laptop was his. Targets of Biden's lawyers include John Paul MacIsaac, the Delaware computer repair shop owner who first received the laptop from Biden in April 2019. Former New York City Mayor Rudy Giuliani, Robert Costello, who serves as Giuliani's lawyer, and Steve Bannon, among others. This is going to go nowhere. Worse, think of the optics. Hunter Biden has just had his new lawyers ask his father's political friends and appointees to bring to bear the powers of their offices against Hunter's political enemies. That looks crooked, to say the least. But let's not lose sight of the real question here, because it's not about Hunter and whether he paid his taxes or lied on an application to buy a gun. That's what Biden's cronies want us to focus on. The real question here, as National Review's Andy McCarthy puts it, is this. 
Quote, what matters here is why corrupt and anti-American regimes thought it was in the interest of those regimes to pay the Bidens millions of dollars. Put another way, when CEFC, an elaborate Chinese intelligence operation posing as an international business conglomerate, paid the Bidens $6 million in a year's time, and when it was planned that 10% of an even more lucrative CEFC deal would be held by Hunter for the big guy, what was Beijing expecting to get out of its investment? Hunter will be back in the spotlight Wednesday as the House Oversight and Accountability Committee holds a hearing entitled Protecting Speech from Government Interference and Social Media Bias, Part 1, Twitter's Role in Suppressing the Biden Laptop Story, which will feature testimony from three former senior Twitter executives. Vijaya Gade, the former chief legal officer, James Baker, the former deputy general counsel, and Yoel Roth, the former global head of trust and safety for Twitter. Now the latest on the Biden documents, the story that just won't go away and which every day seems to bring a new revelation that makes things worse for President Biden. On Tuesday of last week, CBS News reported that the FBI had searched the Penn Biden Center's office in mid-November, following the November 2 discovery by Biden's attorneys of documents with classification markings there. But nobody told us that after CBS News broke the original story on January 9. In fact, nobody told us the FBI had ever searched the Penn Biden Center office. So much for the Biden White House's vaunted transparency. As the CBS report put it, quote, personal attorneys for Mr. Biden declined to comment. The Justice Department and FBI also declined comment, end quote. On Wednesday, the FBI conducted another search, this time Biden's beach house in Rehoboth Beach, Delaware. The agents found no classified documents, they said, but they did remove some material, including handwritten notes that apparently dated from Biden's time as vice president. Given that President Biden and his wife went to the Rehoboth Beach House a few weeks ago while their Wilmington house was being searched by the FBI, it would have been truly remarkable for the FBI to have found any classified documents there at this time. Elsewhere, the chairman and ranking member of the Senate Intelligence Committee, Democrat Mark Warner and Republican Marco Rubio, sent a letter to Attorney General Merrick Garland and Office of the Director of National Intelligence, Director Averill Haynes, demanding that they that, demanding what they call immediate compliance with their request to see the classified documents that were seized at President Biden's Delaware home and former think tank office and at former President Trump's Mar-a-Lago estate. Now, finally, to the Chinese spy balloon. What to say about this Chinese spy balloon? The U.S. military says it first detected the balloon as it flew over the Aleutian Islands on Saturday, January 28. No one told the president about it until January 31, which was last Tuesday. By that time, it was already flying over the continental United States, Montana. And when Biden gave the order to shoot it down, which, according to the official White House version of events, happened on Wednesday, the military urged him to wait, allegedly out of fear that the falling debris might cause harm to people or property below.
It was ultimately shot down Saturday afternoon after it crossed South Carolina and flew over the Atlantic. Its debris was spread over seven miles in water about 47 feet deep. And that's our Washington Report for this week.